Father, our God, we want to thank you so much for church. Thank you for this place where we can come together with one heart and mind to worship you and to serve each other. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's never-ending truth. Lord, soften our hearts and prepare us for hearing your word. Lord, may you grow us, change us, encourage us in our faith through your word today. Bless the words that come out of the mouths of those that are reading and preaching, that it may come into our hearts and change us. May we, may we not listen and forget, but listen, take in, take on board, and do. Amen. The readings from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marvelled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. 
He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's great to be here. Uh, you'll find, uh, as Shannon said, there's a little outline in there. You can follow along. And um, as we work through, uh, it's a little bit of a topical, so we are uh, looking at some other passages as we go. Uh, so you'll find them up on the screen. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Show us how great your son Jesus is. Enlighten us this morning that we may all walk away knowing you better and loving you more with hearts full of faith and praise and joy in believing. Amen. Well, of all the things and the ways that the world has been changed, a baby has to be the most unusual. Wars change the world, empires change the world, great discoveries and inventions and cures change the world, not babies. I want you to picture that scene that we just read. Jesus is only eight days old. He's tiny, just a newborn. And somehow, somehow, these two old prophets, Anna and Simeon, know already this little eight-day-old baby is going to grow up to change the world like no one and nothing ever before. Jesus would change our world more than any war, more than any empire, more than any discovery or cure or invention. Jesus has changed our world more than anything else. Now, these prophets, they stood at a different point in history to us. They pointed forward to the change that Jesus was going to make. Whereas we, on this side of history, we can look back and see how Jesus really has changed our world in incredible ways. Uh, this past four weeks, we've been thinking about just some of those things. How Jesus has changed our world for the better. Where the, as the gospel, the news of Jesus spread, so did the ideas of freedom and compassion and equality and enlightenment. Jesus has had an incredible effect on our world. But for this old man and this old woman, they, had, they knew at this point that he would change this world and they knew how he was going to do it. In an unusual way, in a way that the world of Jesus' time would not have understood. Our first point, enlightenment over aggression. Now, Caesar Augustus uh, was also known as Octavian. He was the Caesar at the time that Jesus was born. He was the first empire of Rome, and he put an end to a very long period in Rome of civil wars. Uh, he brought about a 200-year period of peace in Rome called the Pax Romana, he was a man who really changed history. Uh, his reforms, his administration, really had a tangible effect on world history. But how did Augustus bring about this peace? What was his tool and his method for changing the world? Well, he did it 
by waging the longest and bloodiest civil war in all of Roman history. And finally, after 14 years, Augustus besieged the city of Alexandria, uh, forced Mark Antony and Cleopatra to commit suicide, then executed some of their children. Now this was the normal way to change the world. Intimidation, force, brutality, power, violence. That is how Augustus changed the world. That is how Augustus brought peace. And how do you think he maintained this peace? Any ideas? You got it. Intimidation, force, power, violence, brutality. And Augustus isn't just an outlier, is he? He's not alone here. Augustus is the norm for rulers of his day. Actually, he's the norm for rulers of every day and every age. Every culture, every continent, from Aboriginal tribes to Buddhist monks, power, intimidation, violence, threats, brutality, aggression. That is how the world is changed. And yet Jesus took a different route. Look at how Simeon describes it in verse 32. Simeon said that Jesus would be a light for revelation. Not a warrior who conquers or a force who subdues, a light that reveals. Well, we've got to ask the question, don't we? Reveals what? A bit like a torch revealing the dangers lying in the shadows. Jesus came to reveal this world as it truly is broken and desperate to be rescued. A bit like a spotlight illuminating a person on stage. Jesus came to reveal every blemish and stain of our sin and our shame, which needs cleansing and forgiveness. We see that in verse 35, as Simeon says that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce Mary's soul too. Jesus came to reveal this world, but he came to reveal us, our brokenness, our desperate need for a saviour. And like a lighthouse guiding ships through the reef to safety, Jesus came to reveal the way to safely come to God, our maker, without wrecking and crashing on the reefs below. Jesus came to show us our world, ourselves, and the way to God, our Father. Now, of course, Jesus isn't the first place person to claim uh, to show the way to God. He's not the first person to claim uh, to really know what we are and what we are like and our deepest needs. He's not the first person to assist, insist that he actually understands the world in a way that no one else does and sees it in truth. And he's not the first figure in history to choose enlightenment over aggression. But he is the only one who has authority to offer those things, uh, to claim those things. He's the only one who, has, who can claim to truly understand this world and showed that he actually had power over this world. No one else could stop the waves, walk on the water, 
or turn the water into wine. There was no other person who insisted they knew our deepest shame and our deepest needs who could ever actually walk up to an individual and tell them the secrets of their lives, tell them what they were thinking and feeling. Jesus did. There was no other person who claimed they knew the way to God and were able to predict their own death and resurrection and then raised three days later after he died. But Jesus did. And no other person in all of history who tried to encourage people to use enlightenment instead of aggression have actually impacted an entire planet to the extent that today billions of people believe that persuasion is better than aggression. But Jesus had that effect on our world. Jesus did not change this world by aggression and intimidation, but by enlightenment and revelation. I just want to uh, point you to our, our first passage uh, here. Um, this is uh, a time when a mob had come to arrest Jesus. This is the night before Jesus was executed. And one of Jesus' disciples, uh, he thought he had the solution in a situation like this. Uh, he had a sword and he pulled it out and he chopped off uh, one of the attacker's ears. But here at this moment, Jesus shows exactly the kind of way that he has come to change this world. He said, actually, no, me and my followers, we don't live by violence. Have a look. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Now, in the rest of that passage, Jesus goes on to say he could easily have fought. Actually, he didn't even have to fight. He could have just clicked his fingers and whole armies of angels would have come and, and these guys wouldn't have stood a chance. But Jesus is making the point that he didn't come to take up arms. He came to lay down his life. He didn't come to shed the blood of others. He came to give his own blood to save others. Just a few weeks later, after his resurrection, Jesus sent these very same disciples out into the world. After his resurrection, he gave them a mission to go into the world and change the world. How? Well, he tells us right here. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. See, how were Jesus' disciples to go out into the world? How were they to go and share the message and make disciples? not through intimidation or aggression or power or coercion, through persuasion, enlightenment, teaching, revealing, showing, and letting people make up their own minds for themselves. Well, in Acts 18, we see it, that's exactly what they did. Verse 4, every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue. He reasoned. What was he doing? He was trying to persuade 
Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying, declaring, announcing to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. The way that Christianity was to spread throughout the world was through persuasion, teaching, revelation, enlightenment. Well, as we know, as this teaching spread, the good news of Jesus isn't the only thing that spread, is it? Because as Christians went out into the world, literacy, books, education went with them, along with health care and reform and, and justice in so many ways. Now, many today will, there's a period in history we call the Enlightenment in the 17th and the 18th centuries. Uh, and this period of history, uh, the idea is that these humanists, uh, people who finally got rid of the idea of God, broke off the shackles, broke off the handcuffs of religion, and were able to just think freely for themselves, the light bulbs came on. That was the Enlightenment. And I laugh, actually, when people make these claims. Because where did these humanists, these Enlightenment people, go to university? Actually, why was there even a university they could go to in the first place? Who started those universities? Well, it was the Christians back in the so-called Dark Ages. Because Enlightenment had been going on ever since Jesus returned back to heaven. See, Enlightenment started with Jesus. It spread as the message of Jesus spread throughout the world. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been teaching people how to read, how to, they've been opening schools, they've been teaching critical thinking and philosophy and agriculture and economics and science and medicine and politics and the list goes on. It was actually Christian teaching which formed the foundation and the bedrock for the idea of democracy to flourish. It was Christian teaching that actually was the bedrock that formed the separation of church and state and limits on the power of government. It was Christian teaching that paved the way for modern science. It was Christian teaching that created a, a culture of free and accessible education for all people. Christian teaching that brought with it the concept of freedom of speech, of religion, of multicultural peace and tolerance. And so when you and I today look around our world and we see Russia invading Ukraine or Al-Shabaab invading Ethiopia, why is it that you and I and our neighbours look at that and think that's wrong? Well, it's because Jesus brought enlightenment over aggression. It's because as the good news of Jesus has spread, we've come to believe that that kind of aggression and violence is completely unacceptable. Now, when Islamists attack and try to spread Islam through aggression, through bloodshed, through violence, actually, there's no contradiction there because their faith their religion sanctions that kind of spread, that kind of violence, that kind of mission. But when Christians act in this way, 
It's so completely contradictory to everything about the Christian faith. Now we need to uh, stop and, and think about, well, what about the skeletons in the closet for the Christian faith? I mean, what about uh, the uh, Crusades? What about the Spanish Inquisition? What about all these times, these atrocities, the stolen generation? Don't Christians have skeletons in their closet? But the reason why we have problems with all of these events in history is because we have Christian problems with these events in history. Our problem with Christian atrocities is because they're so contrary to the good news and the gospel and the way in which Jesus has given his people to live in this world. It's an incredible contradiction to the faith that we claim to be upholding. See, we're not condemning them because we've moved past Christianity and we look back at Christianity and see it as wrong and evil and oppressive. And no, we condemn these atrocities done in the name of Christ because actually Christianity from the very beginning has shown how they are so unacceptable and evil and have absolutely nothing to do with the Christian message. Now, it's not just looking back in history, is it? We can look around today. We've probably lived and experienced some atrocities in some way perpetrated by people who bear the name of Christ. But who have always been at the forefront of pointing out the atrocities, pointing out the evil, pointing out the hypocrisy? Well, it's been Christians. Christians who have stuck their necks out, sometimes on the chopping block, in order to say that this isn't right and this isn't the message that Jesus gave us, this isn't the mission that Jesus gave us. And so we today must never gloss over these things. We can't gloss over these atrocities. We can't diminish them or, or minimise them or pretend they didn't happen or, or argue them away. No, we need to point to these things and reveal how utterly evil and atrocious they are. We need to be the ones saying, actually, that has absolutely no place for someone who claims to be a follower of Christ. We must shine the light of Jesus, which shows just how truly despicable they are. But we do live in a world where we, are, we have benefited so much from our Christian heritage. We've benefited so much from Jesus. And over these last weeks, we've also noticed how as our world pulls away from those foundations, as our world pulls that Jenga block out from the very bottom of the tower those values are starting to tumble. Well, in Australia, we see this when it comes to enlightenment. We've actually, as a culture, begun to choose aggression over enlightenment. I don't know if anyone remembers back, uh, it's a long time now, it was pre-COVID, so you've probably blocked it all out of your memory. 2017, Cooper's Brewery and the Bible Society, uh, they started a campaign together, uh, and it was called keeping it light. Uh, now, the Bible Society website at the time explained the concept behind this campaign. Uh, the whole reason for this campaign was that they'd been noticing 
that it was becoming harder and harder for people to have friendly and open conversation in any public space. Uh, just every discussion about anything even mildly um, controversial was just so heated, so aggressive, so intimidating uh, that they, they wanted to be able to start a light, open conversation. Uh, this is what they said. From yelling matches on ABC's Q&A to screed on Twitter, we just don't seem to be able to talk anymore. And so they began this campaign to have a series of just open, light conversations about controversial topics without any heat, without any aggression, without any intimidation. And ironically, uh, they only got one video in. Now, the very, very first, very respectful conversation was posted online and within an hour the yelling matches had started. A national campaign was launched to boycott Cooper's beer. Pubs stopped stocking it. Uh, people stopped buying it. And within 24 hours, the company had given, Cooper's had given an apology and retracted their support of the Bible Society. Now, this six-year-old example is just one little example of the reality that actually, as we've stepped away from Jesus, we've stepped away from that foundation which teaches us that Enlightenment, revelation, persuasion is better than ingression and intimidation. We've actually turned the tables. Increasingly, we live in a society where our feelings are more important than the facts, where aggression is the chosen method of bringing about someone's desired outcome. And we see this uh, in our universities as censorship is blossoming in places where openness is supposed to be celebrated. We see this even in our primary schools, where children in primary school have been forced to stop having their lunchtime Christian group, which they themselves started with some friends, because people don't think it's acceptable for Christians to be doing that. Even in the medical profession, medical professionals are being increasingly pressured to put aside clinical data to go with the flow of popular opinion, of new ideologies, even though some of them are hurting people. See, in this culture of increasing intimidation, we still need to be in the business of gentle and honest persuasion to be the light of the world. See, the way that we go about persuading and convincing and converting and engaging and disagreeing has to be dramatically different to the approach of the world that we live in. Now, last passage in Colossians 1, we find a blueprint for how we are to go about this mission. We read, He, Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. See, we're still in the business of persuasion, aren't we? This is Jesus. This is what he's done. This is who he is. And we plead with people. We encourage people. Place your faith in him. Come to him for life and salvation. It's not easy but that's how we do it. 
Now this is the end of our series, uh, and throughout this series we've thought about how many ways that we've benefited from Jesus. Uh, we've thought about many of the gifts he's given to humanity, compassion, freedom, equality, enlightenment. But I want to encourage you, don't forget, don't take for granted the one greatest gift of all, the very heart of that. Don't just take the little peripheral benefits and miss the gift itself, that Jesus came as a light for revelation, to bring us to God, to show us our broken world, to show us our own sin, and that the only way to forgiveness and to God is through him. I'm going to leave you uh, with a discussion question. You'll find it there at the bottom of your outline. Uh, Just a bit of uh, something to get us Uh, going and talking and thinking a little bit more about these things over morning tea and the drive home and lunch. And the question is, how does Jesus' mission help us think about the good and the terrible in Christian history? Uh, You might want to share some examples. You might want to talk about the Crusades or or something particular. Uh, You might want to discuss what you might say uh, if you're in a conversation and someone did bring up these skeletons in the closet Uh, and tried to prove that that these skeletons show that Christianity is just another harmful religion. Anyway, just a a little discussion starter. How does Jesus' mission help us think about the good and the terrible in Christian history? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus uh, was like no other. Uh, Thank you that he has changed this world so tangibly for the better. Thank you that we can point to so much good that we enjoy in this world today. Whether Christian or unbeliever, actually we've all benefited from Christ. But Lord, we pray that none of us here today and none of our neighbours would take those very minor benefits and miss the greatest gift of all. Miss the fact that Jesus came to bring revelation, to show us God, to show us this world, to show us our deep need for him to give us forgiveness and save us. We pray that all of us would see just how wonderful this is and place all our faith and hope in him. Amen.